Welcome to the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. Do not adjust your podcast broadcast device. What you are hearing is a rotary alarm system. This siren denotes the beginning of the Macrofab Engineering Podcast, episode 200. Repeat, this is the beginning of the Macrofab Engineering Podcast, episode 200. And we're your hosts, Stephen Craig and Parker Dolman. This is episode 200. 200! Woo! Cheers, Stephen. Cheers. And thank you to all our listeners. 200 weeks in a row. Thanks, everyone, for listening and putting up with us and being a part of this community, which has grown to be pretty sizable now. I think uh, last time I checked, we have, what, 450 people on the Slack channel, and we get thousands of listens every week. So thanks to everyone who participates, and, uh, you know, here's to another 200. Here's to another 200. Cheers. Cheers. Clank. (laughs) It's a thousand-mile clank. Yeah. (laughs) Josh, put a, like, sound effect in there. (laughs) Also, thanks for putting up with that intro. Yes. So, so yes, Par- uh, Parker, what were we hearing in that intro? So my 3D printed air raid siren works now, <laughs> as you all heard. <laughs> maybe maybe Josh can uh, can filter my voice to sound more like a um, 40s broadcast or something like that. That sounded pretty good to me. <laughs> but I was also having to overhear an 85 decibel air raid siren. Which? How do you know that's actually 85 decibels? So I used my my phone's your uh, computer phone. My computer phone's uh, there's a DB app, so <laughs> sound meter, <laughs> right? So yeah, we we actually measured it right before the podcast with with the phone, which you know, uh, sure it's probably not super accurate, but eighty five decibels is uh what eighty five decibels is uh. I looked it up earlier. That's the interior of a car is what, yeah. what it was called out. Which it doesn't sound too loud, or is that just because car interiors are loud? I don't know, because it, it, the next bump up in 90 decibels, it said the interior of a truck. Truck? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but hmm. h- here's here's the thing. Um, your your actual application of this, I think having it at 80 de- 85 decibels is good, because it it's... It's not particularly annoying, you know. We'll find out. <laughs> I'm, well, I'm sure I'm sure you'll annoy plenty of people with it at the office, right? But yep. the uh, um, one of the things it, it sounds like it's a little bit lower pitch than a lot of um, uh, air sirens I've heard, which is kind of nice. Yeah, I don't know because um, I didn't do the design on it. I don't know what actually the frequency is. I guess we can just record it and see what the frequency of, of it. The, uh, yeah, just download another app that tells yeah. you what frequency it is. I guess, yeah, you would just get the FFT of whatever it is and um, and uh, figure it out that way. But yeah, it is a little bit lower than most air raid sirens, at least here in the States. Um, but this could be what air raid sirens sound like in whatever country the person who designed it was in. Yeah, good point. You know, I wonder, I, I, I bet there is a standard for air raid sirens. You know, what frequency pitch they're supposed to be and like how fast they're supposed to go up and down yeah because i also i had a guess on that because it's a hand crank so you kind of have to spin it up and then let go spin up let go um you know it, it, that thing must be geared to like a ridiculous ratio because i watched you spin it up earlier and well, your yeah. hand is turning pretty damn slow and that thing is i mean so you can see i'll 
Well, I can see. You can see it, but it's like, <laughs> see how fast the blades are moving? I'm barely moving this. Yeah, this. you're moving like three or four degrees of the handle and the blade's making multiple rotations. So yeah. there's a hell of a ratio going I on mean, there. I'm not even spinning it and it's still going. I mean, there's a lot of... Is there a word for that? It's 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 not rotational momentum, but it's like the gearing. I guess it is rotational Inertia, momentum. Inertia, right? Yeah, but is that the still the same thing? When it's... It's kind of like the gearing allows it to have that. I guess because you're spinning that mass that fast already. Yeah. Right. It's, 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 acting, it's acting as a flywheel, effectively. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it is that. Yeah. I didn't know if there was a different word because of the gearing or whatever. Right. You, you've used the handle to spin up a mass inside of it, and that mass wants to keep moving, right? Yes. And it's... Uh, so a after you let go of the handle, the mass is then going backwards and turning the handle itself, right? Yeah, I guess it is. It is a moment. It is momentum. But I was thinking, was maybe the gearing there was a different mechanical term for it, but I guess not. Oh, maybe there is. I'm an electrical guy. I don't know that stuff. <laughs> McMaster doesn't tell me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that's all done. I'm gonna bring that into work tomorrow and let everyone play around with it. Um, should be a lot of fun. We'll we'll know next week if I still have a job if episode two hundred one comes out. <laughs> yeah. There, yeah. <laughs> well, that's that's awesome. How long did it take to print? Uh, probably about three whole days worth of printing. Wow. Spread out over a couple weeks, and then um. D did you grease it at all, or is it just running on bearings? It's just bearings in there. Um, okay. I didn't grease the gears. I guess I could. That kind of. Because there is a little bit of a clanking noise when the gears mesh up. Yeah, the signal-to-noise ratio is is not too great, right? Yeah, well, I mean, yeah. <laughs> that's the slop in the system. That's the slop of the gears. He was, he was jiggling the handle. There. <laughs> um, but yes, the, 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 the siren is a lot louder than that, so it's like, eh, it doesn't matter. So, yeah, um, yeah, for sure. It serves one purpose, and it does that. Yes. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's done. And, um, also was working on a, unless we want to keep talking about this, but I think we're done talking about the air raid siren. I mean, I think, yeah, it does one thing and it did it. It does one thing. It makes loud noises. <laughs> it makes, yeah, right. Well, no, it makes one loud noise. <laughs> right, right. But, it, but uh, hey, the, at least the pitch is variable, right? You can, yes, you could play a song on it if you wanted to, but, uh, the, the, time in between notes is so slewed that you would have to play something really slow. <laughs> You'd play it really slow, record it, and then speed it up. Oh, yeah, there you go. Yeah. Or you just had a... You could make a really lightweight rotor out of, like, titanium. Right? And then a big electric motor that's really torquey that you can, like, really quickly change the speed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The backlash of the gears would just make it just rip itself apart, though. <laughs> like if it just tried to change speeds instantaneously. Um, I think we did talk about that. Like you could probably make the outer casing have variable slots potentially to change the pitch. Oh, you know, actually, now check this out. Uh, think of it like a uh, uh, like a propeller on a or a. Um, a screw on a uh, ship. Uh, if you you know how some of them have the ability to change the angle that they chop into the the water. Mm -hmm. Like if you could change it such that they would um, 
they would make the rotor circular so you could you could make it circular and then change speed and then open them up and then play whatever pitch that is then you could make it a little bit faster between pitches yeah. but then we're defeating the whole purpose of this thing being a single use just like spin it up it's supposed to just let you know that bombs are falling <laughs> yeah <laughs> say um doomsday arrival sound actually effects. you know no uh, you know that's not their only use i guess they um they use tornadoes tornadoes yeah here in the tornado States. sirens yeah but uh, you know that's the only time i've lived in um oklahoma and in uh, texas well and now denver but in in oklahoma and texas i have heard sirens before uh in little in the small towns i lived in and they are pretty damn loud that's for sure yeah when i worked in oklahoma there was a air the siren went off and we had to go get in the basement <laughs> <laughs> i remember very distinctly uh sitting in a bathtub as a small kid like with the whole family in a bathtub and I was wearing a football helmet. Cause like, <laughs> I mean, there was a giant tornado coming through Oklahoma and they put, they put giant, they put your bathrooms central in the house for that. Yes. For that. Exact and reason. you get in the bathtub and sometimes if you have time, you can grab a mattress, throw it on top or a blanket. Yeah. But, um, football helmet is a new one. You yeah, tackle like, that thing. I, both my sister and, and, and myself were, uh, we had helmets on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess it Good would times. help a little bit. Yeah, I mean, oh. I was probably like seven at that time. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I have been doing some electronic work instead of three D printing noisemakers. Um, so I've been working on a super secret DefCon badge, the power subsystem for it, and it is based off the uh, Doom shitty add-on I built last year. Or I guess it was technically this year. Um, built this year for DEF CON 27. Um, so it uses USB Type-C for, like, cable power. Or, like, uh, auxiliary power, I guess you could say what it... Uh, uh, you can call it. And I'm using the 5.1K pulled both CC pins down. Unlike the Raspberry Pi 4. So you pull both those pins down, and that gives you 1.5 amps at 5 volts from a USB Type 3 charger, um, which is going to be plenty of power for our badge. Um, and then the other power, because like the badges have to have their own power source, um, and we haven't invented like power scavenging for high-powered applications yet. Um, so you have to have a battery. So we're using alkaline primary cells like double-A batteries. So, um, the good old Amazon double A's, right? Yeah. Um, we don't really like lithium batteries that much for badges because they're kind of like exposed. And if you get a, if a, if a double A battery gets shorted out, it takes a while for it to get hot and it doesn't typically explode catastrophically and burn people or fire. Yeah. Fire. Whereas lithium, if you short it out, it's going to, Rupture. It's going to puke its guts pretty fast. <laughs> yeah, pretty fast. Smoke out. It's going to let the smoke out pretty quickly. So we typically do, uh, like, alkaline primary cells. Um, and so I'm basing the power system off that. 
Um, and I'm also using the TPS 2113, which is why I used on Doom to do like the power switching. So that's like a power mux that does hot swapping. Uh, so so when you, you if you plug it in, you can see it like right away. Or, yeah, I mean, yeah. It'll so it'll switch the power. Yeah, right? it will switch power without interruption. That's pretty. So cool. it's really nice. Um, it's not the cheapest way you can implement that, but it works really well, and it's a single part. So labor-wise, you typically work out. Uh, it's cheaper than building it out of discrete parts, like a couple of MOSFETs and some like an op amp. Mm-hmm. You could do it that way, but. Um, yeah, it works really well. I like it a lot. Um, so I'm going to be reusing it this year uh, for next yeah, year's thing. It's $2 in singles at uh, Mauser right now. And yeah. in, in quantity of 1000 it's still about a buck. Yeah, and, that, and the thing is, there's not a lot of uh, competitors to this device. Hmm. Like, if someone else out there knows of a power mux that handles, like, around 5 volts kind of stuff and about an amp... Let me know. Because <laughs> um, there's not a lot out there for this kind of stuff. Especially, it also has to have current limiting capabilities, which this does have. Oh, okay. What do you have it set to? Ours is set to 500 milliamps. Okay, so just like regular USB. Yeah. Um, and then... Uh, also on this, this is kind of like a... Um, application note i guess for badge power is a good way to think about it because i also have like the shitty add-on connector and we're implementing proper current limiting for it through like a ptc resettable fuse um last year we just used or this year i guess uh we just used like a resistor and that doesn't is not the right way to do it (laughs) did you have any problem like specific problems with that uh, high-powered shitty add-ons would get browned out through that. Oh, okay. um, yeah. So this year we're going to have a, a PTC fuse there set to 250 milliamps, which is what the shitty add-on spec says. And that is why we have the current limiting set to, to 500, mm-hmm. which is basically double that. Um, and then I'm going to try a little buck... Uh, switcher instead of because last year we used an LDO um, to knock down the, the battery voltage down to the um, 3.3 volts we needed. So I'm going to try a switcher this year. What wasn't uh, wasn't the battery voltage three volts on uh, last year's? Yes, I guess it was a a if it was five volts, it was going through an LDO, and then three bol- volts it ran native. Wait, last was year. it boosting it up to no. five volts? Oh, I thought there was only two batteries. All, All the stuff could run on three. Got it. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah, you could probably get longer life with a, with a switcher on there. For yeah, sure. I think the switch... Because we're using the TLV6256-8. And I think the... When I was doing the calculations for efficiency, we're getting about 90%, which is pretty good. Did you use TI WebBench? Uh, no, actually. No, it, you did it right uh, from the data sheet? Well... I used WebBench first, <laughs> and I couldn't find. I wanted a, I wanted a leaded part, yeah, and they didn't have the leaded parts in WebBench. It was all like QFN or weird packages, and I wanted a leaded package so it would be easier to fix in the field. And so this TLV sixty two five six eight is it's weird, so it's like a flat 
uh, SOT 23-6. So instead of a J lead, it's got it's just like flat out. Like like a no lead? Yeah, except that it has leads that come out. But they're flat. Wait, what? Yeah, go look up the part. Okay, yeah, no, I got I got to see this. It's it's really weird. You know, okay. I I had a thought the other day. This is in in sort of in line with this. Um so all the pictures show it as a sot, but it's not that. That's not what it looks like. Right. I'm gonna I'm gonna go down to the bottom of the data sheet as I'm looking at this. Uh, wait, is it, is this this DRL package or whatnot? Yes, we're using a DRL because that's like the only. I couldn't find it in the sot twenty three five or six. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I've seen these before. There's a lot of MOSFETs that come in this style of package where it just has these stubby little like toes that hang out. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. It's like toes. Yeah, they're like it looks more like a bug, um, but but okay. So so I had a thought the other day that would be that I thought was be really cool on uh, Mauser or DigiKey when you're doing your search. You know how you can uh, arrange or you can filter by package. It'd be really nice if you could just hover over a package and it would give you an image of it. Because a lot of times, like you'll have like specific packages that are. Uh, um, like TI's version of an SOIC oh, or yeah, something yeah, yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah. It would be really nice if you could just hover over and be like, oh, that's what it is. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, like you might see something that's like an FRV-9C or something like that. Like, I have no freaking clue what that means. But if you hovered over it and be like, oh, that's this guy's version of a really standard package, you know? Yes, yes. Um, that would that be could, nice. That could just make things really nice. Honestly, when it comes down to Picking components, pictures is a really, really nice thing. <laughs> <laughs> All right, yeah, yeah, cool. I've, I, you know, I, I used one of these the other day. I can't remember what it, what it, it was, and that's just exactly the, the whole thing. It was not called a DRL package. This yeah. was like, this is like a TSOP without J legs. Yeah, I don't, I don't know what, I don't, know, I don't know what it's called. But it looks like it's easier to service than a, not like a DFN or QFN in the field. You know, um, I've in my experience, these things actually solder really, really well. That's good. Uh, just because like the bulk of the leg is sitting flat in the paste, and uh, with a J leg, uh, if you if you look at the angle that that the J leg actually touches the pad, technically there's only one point that it touches the pad because it's at an angle that it reaches the mm -hmm. PCB. And I know that's a, like super minor when we're talking about the kind of solder. Uh, well, but the, 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 the sizes of things we're talking about here, but with this DRL package, the legs have a flat bottom that they just sit down and just in uh, microscope inspections. I I've always liked these packages. So. Well, that's good to know. Well, there you go. Yeah. And then, uh, so I got that designed over the weekend and uh, got those boards ordered. Um, and I'm also working on a lithium-powered version that can recharge over Type-C. Because um, I've done, re like, rechargeable lithium battery circuits over, like, USB uh, micro, but never Type-C. So I'm going to give it a shot, see what happens, what I blow up. Hang on, hang on. Did you just spill some secrets there? The fact that No, we're not using versions? No. Oh, okay. I was <laughs> I was hoping that you spilled some secrets about no. next year's badge. <laughs> um, this is kind of like I'm building these so that 
when people ask us like basic questions like how do I power my badge? Because we get that a lot. I can be like, blop, blop. Well, I mean, I mean, most of the time they have a double A pack on the back, right? Or you just put some batteries in it. Well, like, how do you handle if you have USB too? Like, if you're going to plug it in, how do you do the power switching properly? Like, also, those most badges actually use lithium. And it's really scary that a lot of these badges also don't have lithium protection for them. So Right, right. If they got pierced or anything like that, which is yes. a possibility, especially with how much alcohol is involved. Yes, and it has <laughs> happened. I'm sure it has. Yeah, badges catching on fire. Uh, last year there was, or we keep saying last year, this was August. <laughs> so, it was August. It was August only like of four 2019, months ago. Yeah. Uh, there were some badges that were... Um, pretty large in in physical size there was the giant uh grumpy cat one yeah the grumpy cat one and that one was seriously like i don't know like a foot and a half wide pcb yeah and then somebody made uh a whole badge out of a um like the traditional popcorn tin you know that you would get popcorn at at old okay movie theaters yeah and like some of them were really quite large the the grumpy cat one i believe played music i can't remember i think it did and i i it may have had a lithium on it it was certainly big enough that you could conceal a lithium battery on the back back somewhere Yeah. yeah some of them start to get a little bit um obnoxious eventually someone's just gonna like get a slot machine and then put a chain around it and just like wear it wear a slot machine I what I'm envisioning is like a um, a furniture uh, mover like with with casters on it, and then there's just yes. a chain that you put around. Exactly. <laughs> and then there's a little generator underneath it running. Yeah, keep it running. You know the funny thing is like having been to DefCon only once, I can I can already tell you that like yeah that would probably go over well. Like people would come up and play it. You know. Yeah. If you did that. You're completely fine. Actually, so kicked out. actually, yeah, you would get kicked out really fast because I'm sure the casinos would not be cool with that. Yeah. <laughs> a mobile <laughs> slot machine. You know, actually, the um, so Parker and I played a little bit of slots while we were there just because, I mean, like you're staying. Yeah, you're in uh, Vegas. Yeah, you're in Vegas and you're staying in a hotel, so it's like 10 feet from your hotel room. Yep. And, uh, uh, like, the, the newer... I'm only saying newer because I, that's the first time I've ever played a slot machine, so I don't know what an older slot machine is other than what I've seen in, like, entertainment. And movies. Yeah, but, like, they're elaborate now and, like, giant curved screens with all kinds of graphics and stuff. There's a guy like you and I who's sitting back there who is, like, a professional slot machine designer, you know? Yep. Or what about Buffalo? Buffalo? Yeah, the Buffalo game, that was everywhere. Oh, yeah, no. I mean, the thing is, like, Vegas is so weird because it's such, like, a sensory overload in every possible way where, like, everything is screaming at you and everything is, like, like, getting, like, it's, and there's cash everywhere and everyone's trying to give you alcohol and it's just like, oh, my God, what the hell's going on? (laughs) It's, it's, it's really weird because whenever I think about it, the casino floors are small and large at the same time. Yeah. And there's, and and there's at least in my head, there's 
there's nothing that you do that somebody's not watching. Like somebody oh, yeah. is watching you all the time. All the time. <laughs> yeah. Especially if you're wearing like electronic boards around your neck and that are lighting up like crazy. I, I will tell this story because, well, because I want to. Um, I, 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 I asked, I asked for time off. Um, but I, but I just, it didn't even cross my mind to tell my boss what I was doing, but I asked for time off and, uh, I got it approved. And, and then the day before I left for DEF CON, my boss came up to me and he goes, wait, you're going to DEF CON or you're going to Vegas. And I was like, yeah, I'm going to Vegas. He's like, ah, why didn't you tell me you were going to Vegas? And he pulls out a hundred bucks and he hands it to me and he goes, the first blackjack table that you see you walk up to it and you put you put this hundred bucks on black. If you win a hundred bucks and you keep the, the winnings and you give me back a hundred, and if you lose, then we both laugh about it. And sure enough, I freaking did it. I, yeah, I just, you won, and I won a hundred bucks on black. <laughs> <laughs> and I know it's not etiquette, but like I don't know, gambling's not my 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 biggest thing. So like I'm I'm not really exactly sure I care about etiquette when it comes to it but like yeah i won a hundred bucks and i just said okay and i just left <laughs> I, just, <laughs> I just took my hundred bucks i know you're supposed to tip the guy and stuff but i was like nah i just i just took the hundred bucks <laughs> i don't know vegas isn't isn't my jam it was fun though the whole culture there of tipping like like i tip my waiters and stuff like that but like there it's a different level of like what you're expected to tip for yeah right I'm sure like, I broke every single rule. I sat down. I put a hundred. I put a hundred bucks down. I won a hundred bucks and then just left. They probably yeah. hate me. Like, <laughs> <laughs> but frankly, I, I don't. I don't know if I. They care. have your your pictures now inside the door at Paris, and it's big red X over it. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what? I if that was true, I wouldn't care. <laughs> Whatever. I got a hundred bucks. That was cool. Yeah. So my next project. Yeah. Okay. Oh, we're already talking about the next thing. Next project. Um, I am working on my brewery finally again. Yeah, because you've had you've had the electronic cabinet like somewhat. So I done actually looked it up. While. February twenty eighteen was the last time you touched it. Touched February eighteen. That's my birthday, dude. Ah. Well, hopefully it'll be done before your birthday this time. Yeah. And then uh, you'll have to brew me some. Uh, let me see here. Uh, Fat Elvis. I want oh, some okay. Fat Elvis or Spotted Steer, which are okay. two of Parker's brews. Yeah. Uh, so Fat Elvis is a Mocktoberfest, which so an Oktoberfest beer. We're going to get into the weeds here. Oktoberfest is supposed to be a lager, but a but Fat Elvis is brewed like a lager, but it's with an ale yeast. You just cold ferment it, and it's pretty fucking good. Uh, are we talking like sixty four degrees, sixty five degrees? Yeah, sixty two degrees. In freedom, it's pretty cold units. for an ale. And then um, that's and then really the cool. other one. Uh, Spotted Steer is a clone of the famous beer from Wisconsin, Spotted uh, Spotted Cow, which is a Kolsch cream ale. Ooh, that one was good. Yeah, Actually, really good. so when it comes down to if we're talking about February, I think I would go with Spotted Steer over uh, Fat Elvis because, well, October. Yes. Yeah, makes sense. So yeah, I can brew it. Um, I actually, what I've done so far is basically got all my stuff out of the closet and spread it all out of the garage. I'm like, okay, this is what I have. And 
What do I wait, need to wait, buy? Wait, wait, wait. I'm, I'm going to pause you for a quick second. And the reason why, I don't know. I can't remember if we've talked about it on the podcast or not. But, um, well, a while ago, we, we, uh, we even pulled up a Hackaday article about, like, how many things do you have to do to make something else true? Effectively, like, do you have to make a CNC so you can cut a piece so that you can make a machine uh, such that you can like, and, and how and, far down the rabbit hole, right? How go? far down the rabbit hole. And the whole thing was like, and I've been talking to Parker about this for a while. Like, so something that I don't think we've mentioned, you completely stripped your entire garage of everything <laughs> such that you could epoxy the floors yes. such that you could put everything in it such that you could get back to doing projects. Yes. I basically <laughs> took six weeks <laughs> to basically clean out the entire garage, took everything out, clean, power washed everything, painted the floor, repainted the walls, put new more lights in, and then put everything. And I insulated the garage door too, like all that. And now I'm finally back to doing projects. Now you can get back to <laughs> making progress, right? Yes, on my brewing rig. Right. So almost I, a year later. And the problem is I lost all my drawings that I did of, like, the actual, like, brew cycle I came up with. Because it's like a... Oh, you had some really complex uh, stuff going on with that. Yeah, and I lost it all, and I couldn't find it. So I redrew it. I had to redraw it again so I could put it on... But it actually, I think, matches. Because it ca I came up with the same amount of fittings that I bought. <laughs> <laughs> so it must mean it's correct. <laughs> so, like, all the stainless pieces I bought, it all matches. Well, and um, and you're doing the you're doing the thing that I haven't seen before, or let me see if you're still doing it. But uh, you were talking about recirculating the water while boiling, right? Yes, I'm doing that still. I've um, I've not seen that before, at least in the home gamer world. Yeah, so I was going to do. I'm also recirculating in the the heat exchanger for your mash. Mm -hmm. I'm also cycling that water through because I can. Right, so it's a it's a Herms system. Heat yeah, yeah. Well, no, well usually Herms, system. you go through the coil, right? The heat exchanger, right? Right. But I'm also cycling the water in that the hot the hot liquor tank, which is basically a big pot. Of right, hot because water. you got was it two or was it three pumps? I had three pumps. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. I because I'm because uh, previously I was using barbs with a whole bunch of silicon hose to pipe it all together. Um, I've decided since I'm actually going to get stainless hardline and actually bend it all. And then that way it makes the cleaning even easier because I just put like a really caustic material in there and just like. I, I remember the original idea behind this wasn't based off of brewing beer. It was based off of cleaning the system. <laughs> yes, exactly right. Because it's like I already make really good beer with like a cooler and a turkey burner. So I'm right. like, okay. And cleaning sucks. Yes, cleaning's the worst. It takes longer to clean all my equipment than it did to brew beer. Yeah. And so I'm like, can I make a system where all I do is put cleaner in the hot liquor tank, which is the first vessel in the homebrew rig, and then let that run, and then turn some valves, and then it goes into the next chamber, cleans it, and then goes into the boil at the end. And that's all you have to do. And then I rinse at the end, right? right. Um, so, like... Yeah, so I'm going to run uh, instead of silicone hoses because silicone hoses will, like, sag, and so, like, liquid will just collect in them. Um, I'm just going to hardline it. And um, so I ordered a two-bender and going to start playing around with bending stainless. should be interesting. Are you going to put sand inside of the tubes when you bend it? No, the bender I got has got, like, a mandrel bend. Yeah. Not a mandrel 
It's not a mandrel tomb bender because it doesn't have the part that goes inside, but it's actually got a proper die, forming die. Right, so it's not going to just um, uh, crimp. Crimp the crap out of it, yeah. yeah it's not yeah, going to yeah. do that. That's cool. What's what's the um, – so what size uh, tubing are you going with? I'm going to do half inch, I think, um, mainly because my, my coil is half inch. And so going from a – I think, like, the largest most people use in homebrewing is, like, five-eighths. So going to five-eighths doesn't seem – beneficial for me because i'm already restricted on one tubing size oh geez we're going back to physics here like if you yeah, fluid if you go from one a larger size tube to a smaller size tube doesn't the it speeds up it speeds up right yeah 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 so, so i think i'm just gonna stick with half inch through the whole system it should be fine right I, it's like half i have inch, enough half pump. inch is pretty big because a lot most people use three eights yeah and i have enough pump like these are pretty big they're called uh Chugger Chuggers. pumps, right? They're like they're pretty, pretty beefy two thirty volt models, um, right? So. Right. Yeah, I have one of those chuggers, and um, if you run it wide open, I mean, it yeah. it pushes. It I can't yeah. remember how many gallons per hour it is, but it's multiple. Yeah, my i my ideal situation here is I can run. I want to be able to run all the pumps full blast. Mm-hmm. I don't want to have to neck them down or anything. So I've been designing everything to be able to handle that. So half inch should be fine. Even though, like, the intake on these are, like, one inch in diameter. They're huge. Some, yeah. Yeah, it's silly how big it is. Well, and um, a lot of that's for priming. Uh, yeah, the reason yeah. they have it so big is just so you can collect some uh, liquid. Some fluid. Yeah. So the, the biggest thing I found out about the chugger pump that I have is uh, when you're using it to recirculate. So there's a step in brewing where you have uh, your liquid is in contact with your grains, and what you're doing is you're activating enzymes at a particular uh, temperature. You're making tea. You're making tea. Yeah, you you you're literally making a tea. Um, but in a, in the more advanced versions of it, you're taking some of that tea off the bottom and then uh, off the bottom of a giant pot of this tea and you're recirculating it up to the top and while you're recirculating it you're also monitoring and adjusting the temperature such that you can maintain it because certain enzymes work at certain temperatures and others work at others and depending on what enzyme you're activating you can actually change the flavor of the beer regardless and, all and of it's, it's, it's the funny thing is when you say that too it's all it's like four degrees of window right right it's, you know, it's super 152 sharp yeah and 156 so you can brew same materials of beer or same uh, ingredients in your beer. Yeah. And at 152, you're going to get a drier beer at the end versus a 156. Exactly. Exactly. And that's hence the whole reason why, like Barker and I get kind of like anal about PID controls and electronic stuff with this because, like, the th the biggest thing is it's actually not hard to brew a beer. It's hard to repeat a brew. Repeat. Brewing, that's yep. the biggest the the biggest thing. Like, I can make you some swill any day but like can i make the same swill is is the big thing but but actually so the the whole thing with these chugger pumps that i'm getting at is like when you're actually taking liquid off the bottom of the grains and then re replacing it on top these pumps are are powerful enough that they will compact the grain and and like basically suck it dry <laughs> you know mm -hmm. like you so you you pretty much have to have uh flow control on them okay which flow control is um, a valve a valve that you do manually like there's yeah. really i looked into once doing um electronic valves in fact I, I bought a 24 volt electronic valve um that 
it's it's a cool valve because it basically just has limit switches at open and closed, so you can calibrate it. Um, mm-hmm. But it's a DC motor that opens it. So in or, in order to do like proportional valves, you'd have to base it on time with a microcontroller, and that's kind of crappy because yeah. I don't know. Like I, it's not a stepper controlled valve, which would be nice, but those are very expensive. Well, I you would I would do with that DC is just have a, a flow meter in line, right, and, and then PID back. back to the flow meter. Yeah. yeah, the the thing about it is most of the time, especially with like. Um, going through the grain bed and and like filtering through things, uh, we're not talking about seconds worth of data. We're talking about like you pretty much have to let it run for four or five minutes and then take start your PID because like things are really slow. There's a lot of lag time because you have to mm-hmm. let that's that that grain bed is a huge sponge and it it's takes a ton of time for the for the liquid at top to get to the bottom. Even though, like, the pot's really not that big, you'd be surprised at how long it takes mm-hmm. to actually get through there. So, so yeah. Um, I got to look more into, into the process, and I want to talk over with you probably after the podcast over the whole thing. Yeah. Make sure I'm not going too crazy with it. No, you're not so. going crazy enough. I can already tell you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, this will be the challenge now. Is my brewery going to be working before your fermentation controller? Oh damn it! <laughs> really? You you're 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 gonna do that to me? Yes. Well, actually, so I mean, I owe you a, a fermentation controller. So yes. Uh, let's let's just make it a general goal that I give you the fermentation controller when your brewery is done. So in um, Christmas of 2020. <laughs> no, it'll be before then. It, it, it will certainly be. I'm hoping to brew some beer for Christmas. Well, brew by Christmas. Well, wait, 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 wait. You haven't mentioned something, though. So we've been talking about your whole brewing system here, but you mm-hmm. still haven't mentioned that you're talking about welding up the cart that holds oh, yeah, all of this to stuff the together, up. too. Yeah. So remember, before you even touch that, you still have to build the entire cart. Yes. Yeah. But um, I think I need to, like, model up, like, how the pots are going to be system- uh, set up. It's so funny because like I showed this to my brother. My brother's got a really fancy system that he brews with, and um, he's got the normal like Herm style three pot system, right? Yeah. And I've got. It's weird because I have two pots at like the normal height, and then my brew pot is low because I'm using. It's so funny. I've got three pumps, but I'm using gravity to go from my mash tun to my boil pot. What? Yeah. Because I like, for some reason in my brain, I like that. Okay. Because that's how I've always, so like, I'm having this recirc of like the mash tun, but I'm not, I'm not going to do sparge batching, uh, sparging with the uh, runoff. Are you still just going to like just dump I'm it all in? I'm going to batch style. Okay. Yeah, so like you do your yeah, so, cycle so main. You are insanely overkill, is what you're telling me. Yes. Like most people, most people like dream for one pump to do everything you're talking about, and you're doing three pumps and then not utilizing them. Yes. <laughs> well, they're they're just they just have like specific functions. Like right. one pump is to pump water um, in the hot liquor tank. Okay. So that's it can pump water from. Uh, it's, it's the most of the time it's pumping wa- the water in the hot liquor tank just to keep it circulated over the 
the uh, heater element, right? Mm-hmm. But then you can turn a valve, and then it can empty the hot liquor tank into your mash tun. So that's your sparge water. Yeah, but I'm not using that sparge. It just dumps all of it as a second batch. Oh, got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm doing it like a batch style like I did with my cooler. Right, where you literally just lift the cooler and pour it in. And pour it into your, yeah. <laughs> um, so that's that pump. And then there's the other pump, which circulates the mash water into the heat exchanger. And that's all that one does. doesn't do anything else. Technically, I could use that one, change the direction, and then pump water into the boil. But I'm, I'm going to have the boil below. Because I, I don't know. For some reason, I like having the slow runoff mm-hmm. instead of pumping the fluid out into the next chamber. I don't know. For some reason, in my mind, that works better. You know, the thing is, like, if you have a choke valve at the end of your pump, it's the same thing. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> All right, gravity feed it is. Yeah. But then it's like, yeah, then I, I should just build a tiered system then, which only has like one pump as well. Uh, whatever. A tiered system technically doesn't even need a pump because it just relies entirely on gravity. Well, if you're doing Herms, you need. Oh, if you're doing a regardless. Regardless. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, yeah. You know what? Um, and then I have another pump that's just circulating for the uh, boil. So that, that, I'm looking forward to that one because I want to be able to um, – because I'm going to have it – because you know I have that hop – man, this is when, – when did the Mac 5 Engineering Podcast, Engineering Podcast, turn into the Homebrew channel? <laughs> I think both of us want to homebrew, and we haven't in a while. I think that's yeah, what this – Forever? <laughs> yeah, and that's what's so going on. So I have, I have that hop spider, right? Mm, that, yeah. that big stainless mesh thing. I'm going to get another one that my research from my um, – from the boil. And my boil will go into. So it and catches so all can, the schmutz. Yeah, I'll be able to catch all the schmutz out of it. Yeah. And so it'll be able to get all the the hot break, the, the, with the, the, the protein goop that comes yeah. out. If you haven't brewed beer before, as soon as, as soon as you get, like, the sugar water going and you start boiling it, like, this magic happens where all this, like, goop starts to float in the water. Yeah. So when you when you bring it to a boil, all the all the... Not all the protein, but all the protein that's on that base uh, denatures, I guess is the right word. I don't know. Uh, yeah, it's the, the 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 hot temperature volatile proteins break apart, break out apart, and yeah. then they clump together. And you you kind of want to collect that. It's not the best thing to put into your when you ferment. It's not the best thing. Um, but on the flip side, the cold break. So when you start to chill it back down, your boil. The opposite um, happens. The opposite happens, so uh, you get a, a cold break as well. I've actually liked the cold break in my 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 ferment. I, I get the yeasties tend to like that. I think you know. Okay, so there's a uh, we talked about this a long time ago, man. Um, there was a uh, there's a website called Brewlosophy where a guy does uh, semi scientific tests on on these things where they will test like what happens if you put the hot break or the cold break in your fermentation what happens if you do xyz and then they serve those beers to somebody or to a panel of people and they see if people can identify the odd one out or something like that they, they basically try to control one variable in a test and check for it and uh in in the test that they did where they fermented where the yeast had access to the cold break so basically all of the excess goop instead of trying to filter it out, they just put it in the fermenter and put the yeast in and said, hey, go to town. The yeast actually like having a little bit of crap in there. 
they they do a little bit better. Uh, they actually even do a little bit better if there's um, hop material in there. So, you know, um, the traditional way of home brewers doing things is like on a stove where you just put everything in a pot and then you put everything in the pot in a fermenter and you throw yeast on it and let it go to town. That's actually one of the best ways of doing it, according to these guys, at least in their their studies that they did, mainly because if you make this like super scientifically pure chemical environment for yeast, a lot of times it doesn't have all the excess vitamins and nutrients that the yeast needs, whereas like that extra protein crap and, and like the 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 stuff that's on the hop plant actually helps the yeast out uh, with for the initial growing phase of the yeast. So, you know, don't don't be afraid to like cough a little bit into your uh, beer, I guess. <laughs> Get some phlegm in there. <laughs> so, yeah, so I was going to leave the because I always take the hot break out or at least as much as I can. And then I leave the cold break in. So I, I was kind of setting up this system to kind of auto do that right which would be nice and i think like having the circulation in your boil is going to be nice yeah boiling but also agitating even though a boil is an agitation but like yeah you're, you're moving the uh the liquid all the time all the time yeah and then that way well and 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 your your style of of boiling which i adopted after boiling with you i used to be really gentle with my boils and then i started brewing with parker and he just goes balls to the walls with his boils i mean like the most vigorous boil you've ever seen and and i started adopting that and frankly i'd noticed a difference it makes it makes better beer it I, makes it does make better it beer makes better beer the thing about it is you evaporate more water yes you have to start with that. more water and yeah. I found is I go a couple shades lighter. If you have like uh, caramelized grain crystal, like sixty or crystal forty yeah. style grains, you go a shade lighter because your boil is gonna is gonna caramelize it harder, so it's gonna get darker. If the right. color of the beer matters to you, well, and and if you're getting rid of excess water, uh, you, what you end up with is higher sugar content. You know, unless uh, unless you're not accounting for that or are accounting for that. So so what I've started doing now that I went switched over to electric and started brewing with Parker, when it comes time to boil, I just set my PID for 100%, where it just yeah, op- 100% opens up and just lets 220 yeah. go right to the element. And what is it, like 5,000 watts? Yeah, 5,500. 5,500 watts right into uh, about seven gallons of water. That, yeah. that's, that water starts to dance pretty fast. <laughs> so that's why I want the circulation is to kind of because with with propane it it's more of an even distrib- distribution because you're spreading all that energy over the entire bottom. Whereas this is I'm I'm worried about it being a single coil and then like it getting cru- like the coil itself gets crusty. Oh, like and then I have to it, get yeah. yeah, and then I have to get in there and scrub it. Well, that's that's why. Okay, <laughs> well here's the thing. Um, I did a bit of research on that, and and when you buy those the heating elements, um, you get the ultra low watt density style, and that, so that's the one I have. Those yeah, the ceramic coating that's internal to it um, has has it distributes the heat really even, and it doubles back on itself, so it's longer. Right, right, and in fact, on that Brewlosophy site, they even talk about that a little bit. Um, about uh, scorching on your element or not scorching on your element. Uh, so even if you're running full bore on 5,500 watts, you're not. Uh, there's enough surface area that the temperature isn't um, so hot in one spot that you'll caramelize the sugars. Or you, uh, in other words, you won't like stick it to the element. 
Yeah. And then, then at the end, what you would do is, since that pump is running, you turn another valve, and then instead of pumping it back into the pot right away, it will go into my plate chiller. Right. And then what you would do is, in the hot liquor tank, which is the first thing, you put all your cold, you put ice in there, fill it with water, and then that pump runs the other side of the plate chiller. And then that cools down your your boil back down to 70 degrees or whatever, right? And then you turn the pump valve again, and it drains into your fermentator. Yep, and then so, you're good to go. Then it's just yeah, a hope. month until you have beer. Yeah. Well, I like to do six weeks, but yeah. <laughs> so. I'm ho- I, I, yeah, it's, it's really funny looking at this and be like, the only reason it's designed this way is to make it easy to clean. So you, you seriously put cleaner in the hot liquor tank and then turned a couple valves and it's all clean. That's pretty awesome. Cause they, I started brewing two batches of beer in one day, just because if I'm going to put the effort in it, it just makes sense for me to do a lot in one day. And uh, so I, I usually start at seven in the morning and I'm done brewing the second batch about six or seven at night. And then I have to clean and it yeah, sucks. You got three to four hours of cleaning to go. Yeah, no, it, it absolutely sucks. If I could just turn a couple of knobs, I mean, by that time I've probably had a few beers, and the last <laughs> thing you want to do is clean after having a few beers yes. and being on your feet for twelve hours. Yeah. So hopefully by my next podcast, I have kind of like I want to have like a three model of how the flow is going to work. Not like solid work style, but like sketch up and like. These are where the valves will go, and this is how my tubing will route. So it's so just like big rectangles floating in space saying, like, this is generally where it'll go. Yeah, that way, that way, like, I actually, because the next step after that would be cutting the holes into the pots and mounting all the, because so, I'm going to, I'm going to solder the, uh, with silver solder, I'm going to solder the, the, the bungs onto the stainless, and then basically that's the next step is do all the hole cutting, and that's part, and then... I can build the cart, right? Yeah. Build the cart, and then I can start bending tubes to connect everything. So you know how you said you were wanting to brew by Christmas? Yeah. Yeah, that's not happening. Yeah, it's four weeks. <laughs> okay, prove me wrong. Prove me okay. wrong. <laughs> um, oh, Last thing on my list, man. We yeah, this we're we're, we're almost an hour deep on this one. We're halfway through our notes. Yeah, oh, jeez. <laughs> <laughs> um, so this week at Macrofab, we uh, turned on guided tours of the platform. Um, so Joey at work been has been working on kind of like these like guided, um, almost like like uh like videos in the platform and and tool tips that will pop up like if you select something that you haven't selected before stuff like that to let help people know what's going on in the platform um so let me know uh in our slack channel how that goes people because it's like live this week so it's first time we ever tried something like this so it's gonna be exciting all right so what have you been up to steven you got 15 minutes of content (laughs) <laughs> no i do not have as much and I, i'm sure the listeners are like yay <laughs> this is not going to be love us this is not going to be one of our two hour super special episodes well maybe it will oh, be. who knows we'll that's coming out. up though oh Episode my god 204 205 i mean what time of the year is it 
going to be the um, it's Mac Star Wars year. podcast it's special. Star Wars time yeah. of the year, yeah. Uh, and we, we, wink, wink, nod, nod, we've kind of got a, a bit of special stuff coming up for that. And by special stuff, we mean normal, but... Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, you know, we didn't even mention it. Um, a few weeks ago, we talked about, uh, or I mentioned a... Uh, uh, you know, doing episode 200, doing like a Q and a thing and people could enter in their, uh, their questions and things. We, we made the mistake of doing that and then putting a string of guests like <laughs> yeah. back to back to back to back. And yeah, then like I realized that like we only told our listeners to do that once. And so like nobody knew what to do. And so, yeah, my bad. That wasn't that, that was not planned out very well. So episode 204 is going to be the star Wars Christmas special episode four. Four. So right before Christmas. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, no, it's right after Christmas. I think. Is it really? Is that? Yes. Four weeks is right after Christmas. Uh, wait. Four weeks from now is Christmas Eve. Are we? Are we recording a Christmas? It says Eve podcast. December twenty fourth. So yes, that's Christmas Eve podcast. Nice. Yep. We should get like. I think my my goals because we have two guests for that podcast. Yeah. Is get them. I'm going to tell them it's going to. Oh well, no, they listen to this podcast. Oh well, so my idea is I'm going to tell them to show up an hour early. If you're our guest, don't listen to that. <laughs> show up an hour early and just get them. Get those two drunk. <laughs> no, just them, but not us. Just them, not us. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that that would be great. Um, so, actually, you know, we need, we need to hit them up and, and make sure that they're aware that that's Christmas Eve that we are doing that podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm not being any, I'm not going anywhere. I'm, I'm going to be here. So yeah, uh, December 24th is going to be, I think recording, um, that podcast. I, I'll ask our two guests to make sure that's okay. And then I probably should ask the other, uh, ask our audio engineer, Josh, if he will get us the. Get us to us on Christmas Day. <laughs> if Good not, point. I have to do the editing. Because yeah. wouldn't that be great to be able to give our listeners the gift of us on Star Wars for Christmas this year? Merry Christmas, everybody. Hey, we have to pull it off first. And I have to be <laughs> right. brewing beer by then. <laughs> yeah, this is uh, this is going to go well. We'll see. <laughs> So, Stephen, what have you been up to? Yeah, yeah, let me talk about some stuff real quick. Um, actually, so I've had a client project that I've been working on that is a multi-layer PCB. Um, well, that's that's not really descriptive. It's a six-layer PCB is is what I'm getting at. And because um, the major, the bulk of the stuff I work on is four. I've done one or two two-layer boards. In fact, I did a two-layer board just the other week, and that was mainly like really stripped down, really small part content, and uh, it was mainly meant for just like how cheap can I make this board and mm-hmm. two layer, but but the difference between two and four layer nowadays is not that much. Uh, still, like it was like how cheap can we make this? But I'm doing a six layer board for a customer mainly because there's a ton of nets. It's a huge amount of components, and now I'm wanting to. Um, uh, I did th- I did this board before in four layers, and it worked. It actually worked out really really well, and there was very few. Um, if any issues with the board, but we're doing a respin and and the customer added some parts. And so now I'm like, okay, I think I'd like to move to six layer just to get better signal routing. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things though, that I've been researching is okay with four layer. I'm pretty comfortable and confident with my stack up where I do, 
you know, I have a particular way that I like doing it with like signals on the outside, ground and, and power on the inside. And what's nice about that is your two signal layers are separated by, you know, typically ground planes or power mm -hmm. planes. Uh, but you also get the inner plane capacitance between your your ground and your power planes. That's kind of nice. But when it comes down to six layer boards, you get a lot more options. And it and you know if you go to eight layers, you get even more options than that. And so, uh, have you ever done a six layer board, Parker? Yes, um, and I've done. Yeah, the Pinheck uh, system was six layer. That's right. That's right. But yeah, and you were dedicating one of those layers to like high current grounds, right? Uh, or so we had signals. a we had signal, three point three five twelve, signal uh, ground signal. Okay, so you you were doing that mainly because you had so much power and ground. Not yeah, we because had, you had so we many had signals. three different power rails, and trying to route those to all different parts of the board was maddening. <laughs> Now, that's yeah. actually one of the big benefits of the of the Pentator is we, we reduce how many power rails we have. So we get yeah. to go to four layers. Yeah, which is cheaper, right? Yes. You know, uh, and, and in the quantity that this customer is looking at, um, I looked at the difference in price between four layer and six layer boards, and it ended up being a dollar a board extra to go to six layers. Uh, so um, in terms of what I get with signal routing and everything, uh, this worked out really, really well. It's worth that buck. Six. It's worth a dollar for sure. But I ended, up, I ended up going with this stack up where I have signal on top, first layer is ground, then the third layer, inner layer, or I'm sorry, signal on top, first inner layer is ground, second inner layer is signal, third inner layer is power, fourth inner layer is another power, and then the bottom is signal again. So three signal layers, two power layers, and one ground layer. And I actually separated the ground and the power uh, layers as opposed to putting them adjacent to each other, mainly because I wanted to have shielding going on there. Um, so that inner layer that is signal. So my two outer layers are signals, and I have one internal layer that's signal. I routed all my digital stuff on the internal layer and then all my analog stuff on the outer layers, mainly because I have tons of of analog stuff and I have generally slow signals actually for the digital stuff. Most of the digital stuff is actually just switching, you know, routing, uh, routing switches digital and switches like and stuff. Digital switches. Um, there's uh, a, a really, really small amount of digital communication and it only goes a very small um, distance on the board. This board is about six inches by six inches. Um, so it's not a small board, but, um, the analog is all over the damn place, and the the uh, digital's, you know, the the probably the the most travel the digital has to do is illuminate LEDs on all extents <laughs> of the board. Okay. So that's why I thought, like, okay, I'll put I'll put digital on the internal uh, layer. Now I did a, I wasn't necessarily designing this with like the most intense EMC uh, mm -hmm. clearance requirements. in mind. Yeah, requirements. Uh, so. A bit of my research found that this might not be the most optimal for EMC uh, compliance, which I'm not particularly wire, worried about with this customer. It, it's not a huge requirement. Uh, signal uh, signal integrity is a bit more important to me right now. That's why I wanted to separate any digital crap with my two analogs. And then my two analog 
planes or uh, signal layers are separated very far apart from each other. And I'm trying to be, well, not trying to, um, I'm being pretty, really particular about how I ground things. Even though I am doing ground planes, I'm keeping my digital ground planes separate. And uh, I've actually got the analog chopped into two different sections because I've got two VCOs that kind of work in concert with each other voltage-controlled oscillators, and they share a ground, and they have their own power supply, and so they have, like, a contained ground area. And then I have a whole bunch of uh, opposite signal conditioning area that actually has its own ground thing. And, I and like I said, this is kind of Rev 2 of this board. I tried that before, and it was fantastic. Everything was really quiet and worked out well. So, I don't know. Like, what, as soon as you go past four layers things get a lot more complex and you get a ton more options. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's where it starts to get kind of weird. And the whole thing about this board is it has nine separate power supply rails. I've got 12, negative 12, five, negative five, a five volt reference, a negative five volt reference, 3.3 volt digital, five volt digital, and then I, I'm lumping ground in there also. I, I wasn't counting, so I'm not sure if that's all the way up to nine. But, like, all of those, like, those are my power supply rails. That's where I was like, I'm going to need two more layers yeah. layers for this. And and I'm not running planes uh, for my power supplies. I mean, obviously, I only, I only have two layers to do with that. Um, but but so far, like, I, I'm, I have three nets or something like that left to do tonight. And I'm going to order the boards tomorrow morning. Sweet. Um, yeah, which is which is nice. So I don't know. I like doing uh, more than four layer boards because it always feels. I don't know. It feels different because like you get to think about things in a, in a different way. And most of the time, I don't get to do six or more than four layer boards. Mm -hmm. And I've done an eight layer before, where I did signal, ground, signal, power, power, signal, ground, signal, power. You know, like in yeah. that kind of configuration. And that was that was All really day. fun. Yeah. yeah, to have four different power planes and four different signal planes um, was super nice. But when you have a big um, BGA processor, you pretty much have to do that. Yeah. When so. I started making boards, you know, we did two-layer boards. That's how you kind of start. And then mm -hmm. when I got I, – I found out that four-layer boards were a thing, it made routing fun again. Because <laughs> you like – well, at least in the digital realm, you're like, oh, yeah, I just need ground. Grab it with a VIA. Oh, I need power? Grab with a VIA. Like, that's it. You don't have to route ground and power anymore for most circuits. Um, and and we've talked about that a, a handful of yeah. times. Plane and plunge, uh, which... For the majority of digital circuits, works completely fine. Yeah, 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 yeah. But when you start getting into uh, more intensive stuff, like, it's not gonna... No. It's not gonna but, cut it. But we don't really do that, so... No. My, um, my new style is kind of like... How far can I get away with putting all the signals on one layer? Yeah, yeah. That's my new thing. And then, like, so I can do a two-layer, and then, so power is on top with signals, and then ground is just the bottom. Only thing that can be on the bottom is ground. Like, how far can I push that kind of topography? Um, and, like, that, that power uh, system I designed, that's that way. Like, everything is on the top layer and then the only thing on the bottom is ground right right so it should be a pretty good theoretically stable uh and low noise digital circuit you know one of the things i've been doing more recently um is 
a, a different method of thinking about how the layout comes together. Because I, I, I like to place most of my components before a, a single trace goes down. I don't like the whole idea of like place a circuit, then then route it, then place a circuit, and then route it. Mm -hmm. I'll place the almost the entire board, or you know, I might route before I'm done placing, but it it'll be close to done before. Yeah, I do what's that. going to finally be. And uh, and I will go and readjust my schematic and readjust pin numbers and all kinds of stuff to make sure that I get as many signals as I can as short as possible and on one layer. Mm -hmm. And then so like I think if you, if you start thinking of it that way, you get um, you get your shortest traces, you get the fewest amount of vias, and then any of your extra layers feel like icing on the cake because like yes. you can just finish off with those layers uh, for all the stuff that you just can't fit. Mm -hmm. um, and especially when you start uh, like with, in the analog uh, domain, um, I really, really focus on, you know, keeping my feedback paths really short. Uh, if I have like mixers or anything like that going on, I'll keep all the resistors that mix together into the inverting terminal of an op amp. I'll keep all that stuff as close as I can uh, to the to my op amps and then all my signals that derive to that. I try to make them, you know, flow in a, in a logical sense. And it's proven to be really, it's proven to be really nice. You spend more time up front, such that like if someone walks by and they're like, "You've only gotten this far on your circuit board," and I was like, "Come back in an hour, and you know, all of these traces will be just like blat done." Yeah. Like if if you lay it out nice, then the actual action of connecting pads to other pads happens in the blink of an eye because you've mm -hmm. already done it in your head, really. Uh, so I sort of did that with this six layer board. And in fact, the majority of this board, the whole reason why I even uh, was doing a second revision was because the first one um, was very difficult to selective solder. Uh, so like above and beyond like electrical, like functionality and integrity, which the first board worked fantastic. It was hard to manufacture because we didn't have enough clearances. So I moved a lot of the components to the top side of the board, giving us a lot more clearance on the bottom side for our machinery. Um, so I don't know. It worked out well. I'm I'm happy. This has been a project that's been going on for a while, so um, I plan on finishing that tonight, and, and then I can I can be off for Turkey Day. Woo! <laughs> so one other thing I've been uh, working on. Uh, I mentioned this last week is that that preamp that I I designed with um, Josh Roser or or Roz, and uh, I, I've actually been using my high voltage power supply to power it. Uh, I have a high voltage regulator power supply that goes up to 400 volts, and that's been great. But eventually, I do want to actually install a power supply in it, and I've got two options now. Um, so earlier, 2019, I designed the Vox in a box, which was just like a high voltage power supply, and and a high current low voltage power supply that were both SMPS that uh, ran ran off of 18 volt DC that you could power a handful of tubes off of. And I was thinking I could just put a Vox in a box inside this preamp and then power the whole preamp and do all of that jazz, which could work out. But I was also uh, thinking a cheaper and easier uh, method would just be to do a multi-transformer solution, which I've always liked this. I've done this before in the past. It's it's a little goofy and it's not particularly efficient, but if you just need to get something done, it totally works. If you take a 115 to 12.6 volt transformer, so a step-down transformer, you can basically plug mains into it and you get 12.6 on the back end um, and then you can use that 12.6 for your low voltage high current 
electronics, which for this preamp would just be the heaters of my tubes, which is close to 500 milliamps. Um, so about six watts coming off of that kind of thing. But then you can just take another transformer that's a 12 volt to 220 volt or take a 220 to 12 volt step down, mm-hmm. flip it around and plug that 12 volts back into it. And then you can get your high voltage. So by using two transformers back to back, you step down, then step up. Uh, you can get both your low voltage and your high voltage for, you know, pretty cheap. So I think I'm actually going to go with a solution like that just because um, I found some flat pack transformers that will mount to circuit boards and still fit within a 1U rack mount uh, Hmm. device. And uh, it just makes things really quite simple. Triad um, Electronics have uh, a handful of flat pack transformers that are, I think, the thickest one I have is like 1.3 inches, which still fits within a uh, 1U rack um, enclosure, which 1U is 1.75 inches. Is it triad magnetics? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I think the... Uh, the let me see here. I, I've got uh, the part numbers for these transformers. Let me look them up. I think they're the FP series. Yeah. FP12-1900. And then the FP24-500. So, yeah, the FP12-1900. Oh, yeah, PC mount flat packs. Yep, yep. Cool. And uh, they're actually kind of cool because what it is is it's just a transformer that has four different coils in it. And so you can wire them in series or parallel, and uh, you can run them as bridge rectifiers or as center tap transformers. Uh, So you get a bunch of options with these guys. And in singles, they're not unbelievably expensive. So um, I've totally used these before for these kinds of applications and they work great i didn't know that kind of thing existed that's cool yep so really easy to make a little pcb for all right so on to the rfo yep we're already like an hour and 10 minutes into an this. hour and 10 minutes in <laughs> uh Cool. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, this first one I put on this list, uh, mainly because I watched a video of this the other day, and it's, it's pretty cool. Um, so Hackaday has an article uh, titled uh, Cheating at Bowling the Hacker Way, which is just a cool uh, article. Go check it out. Uh, this this guy, I, I apologize, I don't remember his name at the moment, but he created a bowling ball that has a mechanism inside that's pretty similar to... Uh, the mechanism that the robot BB-8 from Star Wars has, where it's basically just a gyroscopic ball that can roll. Okay. So this guy created a bowling ball that had that. It's actually a a, a bowling ball. He used that material, uh, but inside he put like a, a a a gyro system that is able to adjust its center of mass, and he hooks that up to a system that he puts on his body. Uh, such that when he leans, he can adjust the center of mass of the bowling ball <laughs> so he can bowl and then lean his body and the ball will go that direction or that it'll, really bo- cool. it'll bias towards that direction. Yeah. It's, so it's like cool. when you bowl and you're like, yeah, yeah no, it, it totally actually does. It, it actually works on this thing. Uh, I, you know, I, w- I wouldn't be surprised if it was actually powerful enough. If it, he rolled a gutter ball and then went, yeah, it would pop out, you know, <laughs> that'd be cool. <laughs> that'd be super cool. He has a whole like build video of it too. And, uh, the design, work it's super impressive so uh, yeah go check that out cool, cool uh something i found out this week uh really cool i'm i i don't know exactly what to think of this digikey is now actually stocking vacuum tubes uh 
So it's 2019, and they just now started picking up vacuum tubes, which makes me sit back and be like, I guess there must be enough of a market that DigiKey found it worthwhile to stock vacuum tubes. And not only do they stock vacuum tubes, they're actually stocking new old stock vacuum tubes. So vacuum tubes that were manufactured in uh, yesteryear. So uh, the thing about this is uh, uh, clearly they teamed up with Tube Depot, which is a provider or a vendor that uh, does vacuum tubes. Because if you look at the uh, DigiKey stock, everything is Tube Depot. So it pretty much just looks like whatever Tube Depot has in stock, DigiKey, you can purchase it directly through mm-hmm. them. So I wouldn't be surprised if they drop ship now. But it is it is kind of interesting to see like a modern uh, component uh, provider providing vacuum tubes like i said somebody at digikey must have done their research and said hey this is reasonable enough i mean i know Mm -hmm. digikey has something in the order of 10 million components (laughs) available so it's not surprising that they just add more but uh pretty cool so if you need vacuum tubes digikey is now a source so yeah if if you need vacuum tubes and fpgas you can buy them in the same place now it's same place save shipping save yes save on shipping Right. The only thing that's that's uh, uh, interesting about that is most of the time when you're buying, uh, especially power tubes, you want to buy them pre-matched. So somebody has already measured their values and put them in pairs together or quads. And so far, I haven't seen that from DigiKey. But then again, uh, they, they have, call they have it's, it's like it's like NOS 300B 1961 pair. Oh, okay. So they are actually selling them in pairs. Go figure. There we go. But they don't have any of those in stock, and those are nine thousand nine hundred ninety-five dollars. Are you kidding me? Not Wait, kidding. what? What was the what was the part number? NOS hyphen three hundred B hyphen nineteen sixty one hyphen pair. Oh yeah, well the three hundred Bs like a, a a new manufactured three hundred B, which is a giant power triode, is uh they're in the range of like one hundred and sixty bucks. So like the the voodoo ones from yesteryear. Uh, are expensive. So that's not even the most expensive one, though. There's one here, the TK-U47-MP, 25K. $25,000? One in stock. Really? Yes. Is that even a tube? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I, I've no, Oh, wait. Oh, that's a Telefunken. Okay, yeah, that's a, that's an old-school Telefunken, and, man, that is just and, dripping with smoke and mirrors and voodoo. But they don't have any in stock. Yeah. When they do, let me know. <laughs> Digikey, send us one. Yeah, Digikey, yeah, I'll test it for you. <laughs> so is that just like an old school style tube that like people like? Is that why it's so expensive? I've heard of the 300B before. I haven't heard of that other one. So. The U47? A U47 is a, is, a, uh, is a vintage microphone. So um, I'm not sure. I haven't heard of a U47 tube. Uh, it's a match pair. Oh, it's a match pair of microphones. I think. Yeah, I don't. Yeah. I I think that might be possibly a mislabeled. It is a. Thing. It is actually a microphone. Okay, so that's a that's an old U forty seven Telefunken um, microphone, and yeah. those are kind of legendary. The Neumann U forty sevens. Legendary. So, yeah. It's a whole. Well, wait, wait, wait. Let's about. look at this uh, vintage. I'm 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 looking on um, Reverb.com right now, which is a audio um, equipment reselling place. There is a vintage Neumann Telefunken U47 microphone for nine thousand five hundred dollars right now. 
No, no, no. So maybe we should so just a get pair. a pair of those and start recording on those, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> jo- jo- yeah, Josh, our uh, our the um, our audio editing guy. He's he's probably like, I'm gonna go buy that right now. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So our next topic is uh, the Toshiba TCKE8XX E-Fuses ICs. So this was, I got an email from Mauser about these, like one of their like new product emails. And so this is a E-Fuse, so it's a, it's a, like a reset, it's like a current limiting chip and it has uh, over voltage and under voltage protection built in. So kind of, it is a basically a fuse that's resettable, but instead of, it working by um, basically like a PTC fuse heats up and then it like breaks internally. <laughs> oh no! Basically, the, the resistance goes to infinite, basically, right? In a PTC yeah. fuse. Sure. Um, this actually has like an active component, and so it, it works faster. Right. It has a trip point. It has a threshold. Yeah. Whereas yeah. a PTC fuse kind of just like ramps in. And um, and and with PTC fuses, it depends on. Like how quickly you approach that. Like if you're if you're right at the edge of the current limit, it can take a long time for them to trip. But if you hit them with a huge surge of current, then it can take a lot less time. So yeah. yeah. So these are more predictable in how they function. And we actually used uh, TI's version of this part, the TPS twenty five nine two six X, before, and I really liked those. But again, it was one of those. It's a TI part. That no one really made a competitor for. It's like that. It's like that Power Mux. It's such a specific kind of part, and it does its job really well. And no one really made a competitor to it. Um, but Toshiba has basically almost a replacement part for this. Unfortunately, it's more expensive, <laughs> and I don't know if it's any better or not than the TI part. But at least say, hey, now there's an option if. You're looking for an e-fuse. Now there's two manufacturers, which is nice. Um, I really like e-fuses a lot. Um, I, I I just wish they were cheaper. Because a PTC fuse is like 20 cents or less. And these are like a buck 20. <laughs> They're a whole dollar more, basically. Yeah. Plus they cost more to install because they usually have like eight leads versus two. So... But e-fuses are nice. If you're looking for, like, hot swapping, stuff like that, e-fuses are usually the way to go. Right. Um, for pinball, we were looking at, basically, like, how do we protect the board from people poking screwdrivers at it? So we needed faster acting than a PTC fuse can, you know, handle. Mm-hmm. Plus, the over-voltage protection is really nice, because a fuse doesn't really prevent that. So usually you have to add a fuse and then like, you know, a TVS, not TVS, a, uh, uh, I guess a TVS diode at the right clamping would work, but you have to have a, a diode, a clamping diode to prevent over, uh, over voltage. So no, yeah. Look into it. If you're looking for power protection for your devices, e-fuses. Cool. Man, that was a long episode 200. Oh, Steven is. Steven wants me to do this as the outro.
So that was the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. We were your hosts, Stephen Craig. And Parker Dillman. Take it easy. Later, everyone. Thank you, yes you, our listener, for downloading our 200th episode of our show. Yes, 200 weeks in a row. We have done this recording through hurricanes, flooding, people moving across the country, all sorts of things. And we still have not missed an episode yet. Yet. That'll probably happen. Um, if you have a cool idea, project, or topic, let Steven and I know. Tweet us at MacFab, at Longhorn Engineer with no O's, or at Analog ENG, or email us at podcast at MacFab.com. Also, check out our Slack channel, which is where our community that surrounds the podcast lives. We have about 450 people in there now. So come visit, talk about the podcast, talk about engineering, talk about annoying your coworkers with an air raid siren, or brewing, or whatever you want to talk about, we talk about there. Um, and if you're not subscribed to the podcast yet through your podcast app, go ahead and click that subscribe button. That way you get the latest episode right when I press submit on our our podcast host. <laughs> and please review us wherever you find uh, listen as it helps this show stay visible and helps new listeners find us. Thank you so much, everyone. <laughs>